Welcome to the MindBeat podcast by Effective School Solutions. I'm your host, Duncan Young, CEO of Effective School Solutions. And I'm your co-host, Lane Whitaker, Senior Director, Professional Learning at Effective School Solutions. The MindBeat podcast is the definitive source for all topics related to school-based mental health, from sharing best practices to highlighting innovative school districts to keeping track of legislation. MindBeat is the go-to source for educators and administrators looking to implement a mental health care continuum. Together, we can make a difference in school-based mental health care and in the lives of students, families, and educators. Let's get started. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the MindBeat Podcast. I'm Duncan Young, CEO of Effective School Solutions. And I'm Lane Whitaker, Senior Director of Professional Learning at Effective School Solutions. We have another great episode today. Uh, Lane, I'm going to apologize in advance because, as you can probably tell, my voice is hanging on by a very thin thread. I am not with you because I am under the weather and I don't want to infect you with whatever kind of gross head cold thing that I that I have, but uh, how are you doing? And we all appreciate you for that. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, you <laughs> I'm doing really well. Uh, we both just had some birthdays last week, so it was a fun um, week. We're, we're just a day apart. You're the third and I'm the fourth. Uh, this one for me was a special one. This was my golden birthday. I turned 44 on 44. <laughs> so oh, wow. it's kind of special, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was it was a really fun time. What did you do for your birthday? Uh, so I had the big one. I'm, I turned 50 this year. Did so you? Was, uh, definitely I definitely didn't a big realize. one. So, uh, yeah, I don't feel a day over 49. Uh, like <laughs> to say, but, uh, but, uh, but yeah, we, we, uh, did some family stuff. We had a, had a nice party with some friends kind of coming over. So, uh, it was great. Just a great chance to spend time with loved ones, friends and family and, uh, you know, good, good chance to like reflect. And so I definitely think that 50 is kind of like, it's like the new, 37 or whatever. And I don't, there's no part of me that feels 50. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if you had, if you had kind of asked me when I was 20 to kind of like predict what was going to be going on in my life, like at 50, I would have been like, Oh my God, I, you know, who knows I'll be, you know, you know, kind of life on the downhill slope, but definitely don't feel that way. And, uh, uh, but it was great just to, Kind of spend that time with friends and family and did some fun things for sure. How about you? That's awesome. Yeah. I, I feel like I all my, because I'm so fortunate, I have a lot of amazing friends and family that all love to celebrate. So I feel like my birthday ends up dragging on for like a week or so because I'll celebrate with this friend on one night and this group of friends on another night. And then I got to see my parents and my godmother. And, um, so I did a little bit of traveling. So it was really fun. I, I just got to see a lot of fun people and it's just nice to get all the texts and the phone calls. And I, I like to think of it as, um, for instance, my, my godmother, we threw her a big birthday party when she turned 70 this year. And she was a little reluctant to have it at first, but I just feel like a lot of us wait till a funeral or something to really tell the person as well as anyone else listening how we feel about them. So I like to use birthdays as sort of like living funerals, get your flowers while you're living and have people really express how they feel about you and what you've meant to them or what you continue to mean in their lives. And so I just felt like I got that like outpouring of love, which is just really nice to, um, you know, just know what, what it is you mean to people and feel special for that day. So I, I had a great week. Well, good stuff. Well, happy birthday to you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Good stuff. So we've got a, uh, we got a great, uh, a great episode today. So Brian Boyd is going to be joining us. Brian is a Mm -hmm. professor at the university of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and just has like an amazingly multifaceted uh, set of, of kind of research that he focuses on primarily autism, but also I think the intersectionality of autism with 
uh, underrepresented populations, minority populations. And then he's got a whole angle of what he does that is all about the science of how things get successfully and sustainably implemented in schools. So I think we'll talk a little bit to uh, to us about that that portion of his research as well. But we're excited to have him here today. Definitely. I'm looking forward to speaking with him. So, Duncan, do you want to take us to our top three today? You want to introduce the top three? Top three. Um, so this is a tough one for me. Uh, this is uh, top three songs that make you happy slash put you in a good mood. And this is a tough one for me because I'm like a total music nerd. And I would say my my um, music tastes kind of are wide and far reaching and probably kind of eclectic. I, so my concern in doing this is that like, you know, I feel like 85% of the bands I would normally mention kind of on this podcast, no one will have heard of. So I was trying to figure <laughs> out like, you know, what are bands I could mention that people will have like a 25% chance of of having, kind of having having heard of. So you might turn us on to something new, though. About, <laughs> you might turn people yeah, might tune yeah. into it just to find out. <laughs> yeah. So I don't I don't know if uh, I don't know if Ming can uh, like when we're going through Ming is our producer. I don't know if Ming can like put, put links to uh-huh. you know where you can buy these songs on on kind of iTunes or access them on Spotify or maybe you know we could put a snippet of the song in. Although yeah, I'm yeah. sure there's some like, rights violation oh, yeah. associated with with that. But um. But the, the, the three the three songs that I mentioned, two of them definitely have like special meaning for me because they're songs that my kids were really into kind of when they were little. So the first one is uh, so Thunder Road by Bruce Springsteen. I'm a huge uh, Springsteen fan. Um, I, it's interesting. I call myself a huge Springsteen fan, but then I have friends who have gone to like 87 Springsteen concerts and, you know, have bootlegs of him singing in like, you know, some tiny New Jersey beachside bar in like 19... 19- 64 or something like that. And so I'm not, I'm not, not that kind of deep into it, but uh, Thunder Road is definitely one that used to be a lullaby for my kids. And, and one of the things with my kids that I'm proudest of is we had my, we had my two and a half year old daughter uh, who was able to sing Thunder Road verbatim, you know, even though she could not talk and string together a complete sentence, (laughs) she could sing all of Thunder Road and it was like somewhat recognizable. And so we actually still have that kind of on video. And so every once in a while for, kicks we'll go ahead and watch that but that to me is just kind of such a great you know inspirational song just so much power to it and uh but a good family memory in there as well um that's one of my daughters my other daughter i have three daughters but my my second daughter or my actually my oldest daughter one of her favorite songs was the song one two three four by feist which is probably best known as being the soundtrack to one of the original kind of apple iphone commercials that was out there and 2008, 2009, but it's a very kind of whimsical, kind of fun song. So that would be the second one on my list. And then the, the third one, which to me, I was just trying to think about like uh, great pop songs, great, great songs that really just kind of are perfectly crafted and, and perfectly put together. There's a song from the 80s called There She Goes by The Laws, which to me is like one of the most well put together songs kind of ever written, maybe three minutes long, but like you know, incredibly melodic and, uh, uh, you know, uh, just puts you in a good mood every time you, you, you hear it. I was trying to think about that team, that, that scene in Jerry Maguire, where he's driving, Jerry Maguire's kind of driving down the road. He's flipping the stations on the radio, trying to find like the one song that you can just belt out and is the sing along song. And I think he, 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 uh, you know, comes to, uh, free fallen. And yeah, so for yeah. me, there she goes Tom would Penny. probably be, would probably be that song. So anyhow, those are my three. 
Very nice list. I can't say I'm familiar with all of them, but, you know, I'm going to get those links when Ming puts them in there and listen for myself as well. Um, but thank you for sharing. So that'll take us into In the News. So the article for today is I read an opinion piece in the Washington Post titled Americans Teens or America's Teens Are in Crisis. States are racing to respond. This was um, a, a kind of inspiring article because it was really focusing on the fact that you know, we are in an, a, an epidemic of, of um, mental health crisis with our teens. There's uh, epidemic levels of anxiety, depression, loneliness, and lashing out, which, of course, we see in our schools every day with the, our line of work. And so the uh, while it starts off depressing as they, um, you know, as they describe the problem, what was really uh nice to hear was the way that so many states that were mentioned in this article are responding um, with a, you know, with a lot of urgency to this issue. So some of the states that they called out by name were my home state of Pennsylvania, where new governor um, Josh Shapiro has just, well, he campaigned on getting counselors in every school, and he has now introduced his budget, which is a, about $500 million, uh, for all the schools in Pennsylvania to receive uh, dedicated support or financial support for mental health. Then he mentioned Colorado offers six free. I said he, I don't know who the author of this article was, but the author then mentioned that Colorado offers six free mental health consults for every student in the state per year. They gave a shout out to the um, Ohio governor for using Medicaid programs to provide 16,000 children, special behavioral health services. And then there were other states like California, Arizona, South Carolina, Nevada, and Maryland that were called out in this article as really responding in a big way to this mental health crisis. So that was nice to hear that a lot of states are taking this very seriously. And it actually reminded me, Duncan, of maybe a month or so ago when you were at uh, a conference with the governors and you were saying, too, how inspiring it was to see, you know, that all of the I don't know how many governors were at that conference you can share with us, but that you seem to be really inspired by their response to this. Yeah, it was the National Governors Association annual meeting back in February in, in D.C. I think it was like 42, 43 governors, something oh, like great. that. So, yeah, this is definitely getting a lot of emphasis. Um, you know, I think I think in states are implementing a lot of really interesting kind of initiatives targeted towards this. Um, you know, I think one of the main things that continues to be, uh, I think, an area of focus is funding sustainability, what that looks like. Right. So obviously these, these services for them to be delivered to students, they're going to take a sustainable funding source to make sure that they can be implemented over the, the long term. So a lot of interesting things taking place there in terms of, you know, the education system and the healthcare system starting to come back together. I mean, we have a way to fund, you know, care like this outside of schools, and that's called you know insurance and, and Medicaid. And so I think what we're going to start to see in schools is a little bit more of a reliance on those kind of tried and true funding paths to make sure that that, um, you know, parents uh, and, and children and parents, caregivers are able to, you know, access care like this in a in a sustainable way. So um, but a lot's going to be changing, I think, in the world of school based mental health in the next five years. And we're going to see a lot of new things kind of taking place here. I'm just excited with, you know, federal ESSER funds drying up. I'm really excited to see that the states are really responding to say, hey, we've got to meet, you know, fill in the gaps and we're here where we're no longer receiving those funds. So that's that's good to see. So should we introduce our guest? Yeah, let's go ahead and move and introduce uh, Brian. I'm so happy to have Brian Boyd here with us today. 
Brian is the interim director of the Frank Porter Graham Child Development Institute and the William C. Friday Distinguished Professor and the School of Education at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Dr. Boyd is quite engaged in research that involves the most vulnerable and often marginalized populations. As a special educator by training, most of his research has involved the development and evaluation of evidence-based practices that could be implemented within school and home contexts. His more recent work has focused on his on how issues of implicit bias and race affect the outcomes of children with and without disabilities. Currently, he serves as vice president of the International Society for Autism Research and co-editor of the Journal of Early Intervention. He also serves on multiple national boards that are dedicated to improving the outcomes of autistic persons and those from historically underserved communities. Thank you so much for being here, Brian. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Brian. Great to see you. I'm so happy to join you. Looking forward to the conversation today. So. Absolutely. So welcome. We're really happy to have you here today. I was wondering if I could talk to you about um, how you got into the aut autism and mental health. Um, it's, yeah, we know you started off as a special ed teacher. What brought you to that? Yeah, I, I told this a, a story not too long ago, actually. Um, it all got started for me as an undergraduate in college and um, at the time, autism wasn't as well known of a condition. And so I was reading a textbook in a psychology course, and there's a paragraph about autism in it. And something about that paragraph really resonated with me. And I decided to search online. Google didn't exist, but I can't remember how we used to search things in the, in the late 90s. Um, but I searched online and what came up, probably because I was an undergrad um, in 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 the state of Virginia was a summer camp in North Carolina called, um, that was operated by the Autism Society of North Carolina called Camp Royal. And as an undergrad, I decided to apply to be a camp, camps, camp, camp counselor there. And it was really an intensive experience. It was 10 weeks of working with autistic, autistic people of varying age ranges, of varying ability levels, um, with us novice campers. And that really, intensive, immersive experience led me to want to know more about autism, to really want to go to graduate school and study the condition a little bit more. But sort of my first foray into autism was this, was as a camp counselor um, uh, when I was a college student. So that's how it all got started. And that led me to special education. So. That's great, Brian. And Brian, reading your background is interesting because there's so many different facets and, and kind of uh, uh, dimensions of the work that you have done and and are, are currently doing. Can you maybe just for our listeners give a quick breakdown of like your key areas of, of research and some of the main things that you're focused on? Sure. So a lot of my early work, Duncan, was really about sort of what are effective school-based interventions. So how do we best support teachers who are working with autistic children um, who are trying to do the best they can in practice? Um, there was a time where we didn't have a lot of evidence-based interventions to provide guidance to teachers. So it was really about sort of building up the evidence base um, to support teachers and paraprofessionals who are out in classrooms doing the, the hard work of working directly with students, um, but also figuring out how we can best train and support them as we are sort of um, building up the suite of evidence-based practices. How do we actually get them to deliver them effectively? Um, so that was some, some of the early work. And some of the, my other work was really about learning more about autism. What does it mean to have a sensory processing issue and be autistic? Or, or So some of that was just learning about autism. And now the 
more recent work is around um, sort of what was talked about in my introduction, which is these issues of intersectionality. Um, so what does it mean to be an autistic person, but also a person of color, an autistic person, but also live in poverty, like those kinds of issues that we're beginning to explore? Because what the research is telling us now, Duncan, is that we do see different outcomes um, and usually worse outcomes for autistic people who have those intersectional identities, in particular when those intersections are intersectional identities of marginalization. So that's some of what we're trying to figure out. Got it. Got it. So, you know, one of the, the things that I think people are learning about autism over the, the last couple of decades is that it is a spectrum and that there is a it's I'm even learning how wide that spectrum is. So I recall during the pandemic that Chris Rock um, said he has um, was diagnosed with also being on the spectrum. When you see a comedian like Chris Rock, it's very difficult to believe that he's on the spectrum. Right. He's clearly very high functioning. Can you share with our listeners some more of what that's? spectrum looks like how you know you can have someone on the uh, far end like Chris Rock but then also like nonverbal students or or you know those um, dealing with autism yeah and it's really a lot of us are thinking that spectrum isn't even good enough of a word to describe the sheer heterogeneity that you see amongst people who are autistic um, as you said you can have people who are nonverbal don't speak at all um, who may have sort of uh, severe aggression that they engage in or severe self-injurious behavior where they're harm self-harming themselves, all the way to people who are quite verbal, fully employed, married, have children of their own, um, who are doing well in lots of ways in terms of our societal standards of how we think uh, people thrive. But the other thing we see, though, um, you know, amongst the spectrum is a lot of what we call co-occurring conditions. So either co-occurring physical health conditions or co-occurring mental health conditions, the rate of co-occurring depression and anxiety, depending on the study can range from, you know, 40 to 80% among people with autism. So a lot of them are dealing with a lot of mental health challenges that they're navigating. And for a lot of us, we know that the pandemic exacerbated lots of mental health issues and it did for our community, for autistic people as well. And the other things we see is high rates of suicidal attempts and suicidal ideation. So some real severe mental health challenges that we sometimes see among people with autism. So, Brian, most of our listeners are practitioners in school districts, and, and I, I think districts still probably um, are evolving, I think it's fair to say, uh, when it comes to their understanding of autism and their, their kind of understanding of how to treat it, especially when you when you kind of start to layer in some of the co-occurring conditions that you mentioned uh, before. What do you think is the most misunderstood thing about autism on the part of school districts? What can districts do to improve their treatment? And just in general, what's the role that schools should be playing when it comes to treating students with autism spectrum disorder? Yeah, that's a great one. I think, um, you know, a big thing is just um, making sure kids are being identified so they're then getting access to the services they need, right? And I think part of it is there's no one standard course of treatment that's going to work for everyone. Again, back to the conversation, because it's such a diverse set of students um, who present with so many different strengths and abilities, but also perhaps impairments and disabilities. And so 
while we may have varying evidence-based practices, the one that may work for a particular child with autism is going to be quite different depending on how they present. So part of it is, are we making sure we're seeing and identifying autism beyond what we think it looks like, the standard sort of um, presentation of autism or the classic presentation of autism that a lot of us used to have in our minds, as, as was pointed out, um, there's, you know, autism, there are people like, I don't know if Chris Rock has autism or not, but there are people like that. Autism does look like that. People can be quite variable, quite social even. Um, and so they sort of the historic, uh, our historic notions of what autism look like has fundamentally changed. I think the other thing we're missing a, a lot, a lot of, out on a lot is what autism looks like in girls. Um, I think girls are still underdiagnosed quite a bit. Um, and that's really a challenge, I think, for school systems and thinking about what then should be the right treatment. How do we actually identify um, girls with autism? But the other thing, Duncan, is just administratively, how do we best support um, teachers and paraprofessionals who are working in classroom spaces? Um, because you know, just by one group um, at the University of North Carolina who um, does a synthesis of evidence-based practices, we now have 28 evidence-based practices. So there's no way for one teacher to learn 28 different interventions. That's just not something they're gonna be able to feasibly do. So how do we support them? How do, how do we administratively support them to get the training and coaching they need um, to learn some basic foundational skills that we know work for most children? And so I think it's thinking through some of those professional development efforts. We know that ongoing coaching makes a big difference in um, helping teachers to learn and sustain a practice. And so how do we put some of those professional development supports in place to really help our educators? Right, have you seen any best practices that come to mind in terms of what a good footprint of professional learning looks like for educators, for just a, a kind of a general ag classroom teacher when it comes to, to you know, um, kind of a baseline toolkit for uh, successfully interacting with students who have ASD? Yeah, I think there are some basic things. We know just good basic classroom management and classroom quality. So having a nicely structured classroom with predictable routines can be helpful. There's some basic foundational um, tools we draw from from the field of applied behavior analysis, knowing about principles of reinforcement, like what do children find reinforcing? How do you reinforce them when they do something that's appropriate and correct. Um, and when they're learning a new skill, so learning some of those foundational strategies. Um, we know that a number of kids with autism are quite visual learners, so are there visual supports in place? So there's some foundational things that we know can be layered into classrooms that are actually helpful for non-autistic children as well. Having a predictable classroom routine, having visual supports and strategies in place, those are actually usually beneficial for all kids having a classroom that's positive and reinforcing in its climate that's just a good thing for all children so the other thing we know is a lot of things we know work for autistic children tend to work for lots of kids for a variety of reasons 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You're speaking to the senior director of professional learning. So I'm, I'm, you're preaching to the choir for sure. Um, when you were just talking about the, the routines and things, it started to remind me of that's also how we describe a trauma attuned classroom as well. So you're right. There is a lot of carryover, um, for those supports, um, for multiple populations. I'm more curious about the intersectionality that you mentioned. We said it in your bio and you mentioned it a, a short while ago. Um, so you mentioned if someone is, is um, has autism, but is also um, you know under the poverty line, or is a minority of some sort. What has your research or your experiences um, showed you or revealed to you about the outcomes or the potential issues for those people? Well, I think the first thing that we've seen through research is that there's just underrepresentation in our research. So. Um, we, our group did a synthesis of the intervention literature, I think it was over 10 years of research. And for the studies, and this was over a thousand studies that were reviewed, um, for the studies that reported race ethnicity data of who was included in the study, what's the racial makeup of participants, 76% of those participants were white. And so we, you know, that's that's the bulk of the of who's represented in the intervention literature right now. So there's a question of, well, are the current evidence-based practices we have, are they actually culturally appropriate for non-white children mm-hmm. and families? So those are sort of the questions that we're beginning to ask. Another thing that's beginning to be found is that the larger racial ethnic disparities that we see in America in general are just being reflected in the autism community. So there have been some recent studies looking at um, Medicaid data where they're finding that Black, Asian, and and Latinx children are more at risk for physical health conditions, one being um, hypertension. So Black autistic males are more likely to have hypertension than white autistic males. But we also know that hypertension is something that impacts the Black community in general. So some of the disparities that we see are just just really representative of larger disparities we see among communities of color in America that are also playing themselves out um, amongst um, people with autism of color, but there are other things like um, being, you know, being in poverty and, and 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 having autism and being in a community then where you're more likely to um, be in a service desert. So just not having services, high quality services in proximity. So families are just having to travel farther to get the good quality services that they need because there's no speech and therapy, speech and language therapists, you know, in close proximity to where there are. So those kinds of things that we're beginning to see in some of the research. And then there's some issue of implicit bias that we see of, you know, what do pediatricians and clinical psychologists and those who do engage in diagnosis, what's their biases about what autism looks like, right? And who has autism? And I think that's kind of where we see some of the gender biases and the underdiagnosis in girls. And the new prevalence data actually show that we're doing a much better job now of identifying kids of color with autism. So, but I think that's been due to more public health awareness in general and really trying to target communities of color around what autism looks like. Um, and so I think we, there are ways we can make inroads, but there are also places where we still see disparities playing themselves out. So. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Brian. So I, I had a chance to hear you speak briefly, which was great, by the way. And a lot of what you talked about, and I think a lot of the focus of your recent research has really focused on the science of implementation in general, 
kind of within within school districts and and you know implementations or organizations like any other organization and implementation can be can be difficult. And I really like the way that you kind of talked about implementation as a science that can be perfected and can be replicated. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that aspect of your research and what some of the findings have been in that? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that, Duncan. I think, you know, where we're trying to get the field to go to a little bit is how many more evidence-based practices do we really need? <laughs> what we probably really need to do is help support those in practice use the ones we've already developed because um, we have some things that we know work. Now, there are some groups where we don't have enough research like on adolescents with autism or young adults. Um, but for young children, we, we tend to know in general what can be helpful and what works. And so now what we're trying to study is what are the implementation supports that are needed to really help practitioners and school systems and other systems, community-based health programs, really adopt and utilize the practices that we have? Um, so how do we get those practices sort of um, implemented within those systems and how do we get them sustained? And I think some of the things that we know in general is that leadership matters. Um, so you you need your leadership team to be on board. Um, and so part of it sometimes is forming um, leadership teams or, or let's take a school as an example, school-based teams that may involve a leader, whoever that leader may be. It may be the building principal and maybe the district special education administrator. But really the job of that team is to really think about how do we support the implementation and sustainment of this practice in our context? But implementation science also calls us to think about all the factors that may have prevented other practices from not having been used and not having been sustained in a system, right? So what was some of the, it calls us to, it asks the team to really reflect on what didn't work in the past and why didn't it work? And how do we overcome some of those challenges with the new intervention that we hope to get implemented and sustained right now? Um, but just really, we're really trying to think about how we call, how we um, do what is called almost light touch implementation. The minimal number of supports a school may need to really use that practice well um, with fidelity, we say. So the implementing it, um, with the degree to which it needs to change um, student behavior in a positive direction. And so we're really trying to think through some of those things. Implementation teams is one. Um, how do we recognize and support and incentivize the people who are implementing the practice, right? That's really important, right? And so, and then how are we training and coaching and supporting them in that practice? And how are we thinking about funding that practice, right? So that really gets sustained in that context. Funding is often a challenge for school systems. So how do we think about resource allocation? Maybe there's some way you can shift current resources to really think about supporting those practices. But really, to some degree, it's that job of that team to really begin to think through some of the dynamics and challenges, sometimes with outside support around, but their goal, their goal is really to think about implementation and sustainment of that practice in their particular context. So those are some of the things we're beginning to, to do right now with the work. Yeah, that's really, that's really helpful. I like your point about light touch implementation. It's, it's almost like, it sounds like what you're saying is that we should almost be evaluating the degree of difficulty in implementing the intervention up front. And if it's too right. difficult, then maybe maybe we are we are kind of uh, uh, going to be you know putting ourselves in a tough spot right off the bat with getting 
sustainability. I almost feel like if you're someone coming into a school district or you're, you're kind of the purveyor of the innovation, it's probably the only thing that you're thinking about, but it's probably one of like 27 different things that the person having to implement the innovation is, is thinking about. So simplifying it so it can fit into their, you know, kind of already busy brain, it seems like uh, uh, one of the key things that you're saying here. Absolutely. Those questions of, is it feasible for this context? Is it even acceptable to them? Is it so divergent from what how they've been doing things that they'll never adopt what you're asking them to do? And so this idea of incompatibility is a really big one. Is it so, is it really incompatible with how educators in that particular school have been trained in the past? Like, are we asking them to do something that's fundamentally different from the philosophical beliefs and values about how you educate children? And the more divergent the new practice is from current practice, the more difficult it is going to be to convince them to do it. And and if they do do it, to do it well and keep doing it after you leave. So those kinds of questions around feasibility, acceptability, compatibility are really important, as you said, Duncan, questions to be, that, the, that the implementation team really needs to think about as they're um, trying to adopt a new practice. As you talk about, you know, adopting new practices, I want to kind of follow up on, on something you had said earlier uh, about um, students that have ASD that that they may be uh, students of color with ASD may be getting culturally inappropriate interventions because they're not represented in a lot of these studies. Um, and you also mentioned that girls are, are a lot um, less diagnosed than boys. So I'm curious what can be done about that and why is that the case in the first place? Why aren't they part of these studies? What's causing that? Are they not being included? Are they not participating? And what do you think could could remedy that as well as what's going on with the girls in the underdiagnosis? Yeah, those are those are great great questions that <laughs> uh, definitely we're that we're trying to tackle. I think with underrepresentation, I think there are a number of factors. I mean, and it varies by the community of color that we're talking about. Um, we know with a lot of times, I think with with black communities, there's there's been historical mistrust with research. For, variety, for a variety of reasons, we can go back to things like the, the Tuskegee experiment. And so those historical um, mistrust, and probably we can talk about that with indigenous and Native American communities as well, um, there are historical reasons that may, may, that may really still affect their research participation to this day. But what we've been trying to do to sort of overcome some of these challenges, one is partner with existing community-based organizations that, are all, that already have the trust of those communities and that are already operating in those spaces. So there's some great sort of Latinx communities or, or communities serving um, Black children and families or communities serving, you know, Native American children and families. And how do we partner with those, those organizations that already have built-in trust um, to do the work? I think the other thing we've really been trying to think through is are we asking research questions that are, are that are of importance to those communities? So I've told this story before, but um, I had a colleague of mine um, who was working um, in the Philadelphia community and it just because of the racial makeup of Philadelphia, he happened to be interacting with a lot of black families of autistic children. And he showed up for a workshop one day thinking they want to hear a lot about autism and you know the basics of autism 101. And they wanted to talk about policing in their community because of their fear that their black autistic child who was nonverbal would have 
negative police interactions. And so, you know, those weren't the kinds of research questions we were asking, but those were the kinds of things the communities were talking about. And so I think part of it too, as I said, is are we asking questions that are relevant to the community? And then we've also been trying to think as researchers, what what's the racial and ethnic makeup of our of our research teams <laughs> are do they have people on them that look like people in the community um, that we're trying to draw into our study so those are some of the things we've been trying to do to address to work with communities of color i think the girl issue is a complex one just because historically autism has almost been thought of as a male disorder to some degree. It's something that's just historically thought of as being more prevalent in boys. And what we're learning is that it just looks different in girls. Girls tend to be able to mask or camouflage some of their differences a little bit more. Um, so they don't present with the same kinds of social challenges sometimes. And so it's making us rethink what autism looks like a little bit. And I think that's just gonna take some catching up and some more focused studies on girls to learn a little bit more about what it actually looks like in girls. And there's some people who are doing that work, so. That's fascinating. I didn't realize that they often present differently. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to be cognizant of your time. Um, so as we wrap up here, or Duncan, did you want to ask our mental health question or toolkit question? Go, go for it. Okay. Go for it. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we like to ask all of our guests at the end of our interviews, what's in your mental health toolkit? How do you uh, maintain good mental health? What is in your routines, your practices to support your own mental health? What's in your yeah. toolkit? That, that's real. That's a really good question. I need to think about it. But you know, exercise is important. So I try to exercise. Um, being out in nature is a really good one for me. So I live. I'm you know fortunate to live near a trail. So I try to get out and walk every so often. Um, uh, so just being out in nature um, is really important for me. I do try to take some time in the morning just to have like five minutes to myself <laughs> before I start checking email and really getting into my day. I wouldn't call it full meditation, but just sort of uh, let me decompress a little bit and think <laughs> before I start my day. Um, and then I think the other thing is just family time and, and making it be true family time where I'm not trying to also do work. Um, but sort of how that thinking about that quality time with family, I think family helps to give you a break, but really enjoy spending time with them. So I think those are some of the things I try to do to protect my mental health. It's a quality list. Very, yeah. very good list. <laughs> so, well, Brian, listen, we are so appreciative of your time. Uh, just thank you for the work that you're doing. It's incredibly impactful. And again, so, as I mentioned before, multifaceted, uh, but really uh, just making a a huge difference in the lives of, of young people. And especially given the fact that you're not just focused on the theory, but you have a piece of what you're doing is focused on how to actually make that a reality and in, in, uh, at, at scale across school districts, which is, you know, of course, so, so important. But I just appreciate you and appreciate all that you're doing. And thanks for spending some time with us today. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me. Good, good stuff. Uh, what a, what, what a, uh, I, I had a chance to Hear Brian speak at a, at a conference a couple of weeks ago and uh, learned a lot then, learned a lot 
now just uh, really some interesting research that he's doing. Absolutely. Like I didn't. Um, well, so I did. And I wanted to mention it earlier, but he said it so much more eloquently than I could have. So I'm so glad I didn't. <laughs> but I wanted to say, like, for instance, I hear D.L. Higley, another comedian. He has an autistic son who's severely, profoundly autistic. And he is always saying that that's his worst fear is that if he's out in the world and there is a police interaction that they won't recognize that he's autistic. They're just going to think this is a um, a large black male um, who is refusing to listen to the instructions of the police. And so he said like negative interactions or something. He was just very eloquently. You can tell he's talked about this before, said it so much more eloquently than I would have. So like I said, I'm glad I refrained and let him restrain myself and let him answer. But yeah, that's yeah. a real concern. I'm I'm, don't, I'm not surprised that that's what the Philadelphia people were saying is like, how do we protect our kids? Like, do they have to wear a sign around their neck so the police know? Like, how do they know? They're not going to have the ability to articulate like, I'm autistic, please don't shoot. Um, and so you worry about your kid just being out in the world. So yeah, I thought that was interesting. For, for sure. So, um, all right. Uh, well, Lane, let's uh, wrap up today by talking about what has inspired you this week. Do you want to check us off? Yeah, I'm going to say I'm I'm kind of corny. I'm going to go with the spring because um, I didn't appreciate spring and probably until my early 30s. Honestly, it was just a pit stop on the way to summer. It just was a signal that the, there's light at the end of the tunnel. And now I really appreciate spring. I was sitting on my drive here and I, I drove to my parents' house to, in Harrisburg yesterday for Easter. And the ride down there is typically very boring for me, but it's so pretty right now because the trees are blooming. There's buds everywhere. I really notice all of the colors now, which before it was just a blur. I didn't even pay attention. So I really appreciate springtime now um, and that it really is the kickoff, not just a pit stop. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, that's yeah, what inspired yeah. me. And the weather is about to change. I'm going to get more sunlight, which I desperately need. I need at least 15 minutes of sun a day to regulate my mood. Um, so I'm going to be in my garden more. This is getting very exciting. By May, usually, my garden is in full swing. I'm getting excited. That's good. That's good. You can stop, you know, popping your vitamin D supplements and get <laughs> some actual sunshine, sunshine for a change. So uh, exactly, definitely a mood yeah, elevator. So, yeah, for 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 me, I'll, I'll go with a personal one. So my my uh, my dad was diagnosed with cancer about a year ago, and so he actually has just uh, finished his one year anniversary of being cancer free. So he's doing he's doing great. I had a chance to see him kind of this weekend, and and so that's why this is kind of kind of fresh in my mind, but, you know, we're really proud of the progress that he has made. And um, he has some mobility challenges as well, but it's moving really great. And, you know, a testament to the power of, you know, good physical therapy and, uh, you know, good, good cancer therapy and how far kind of, you know, I think our entire medical establishment has come in that. So shout out to my pops and, uh, uh, you know, uh, hopeful that he's going to continue to be doing great here as we, uh, as we move forward. I'm so happy to hear he's doing well. Yeah. Yeah. No, good, good stuff. So, all right, well, Lane, that's going to wrap us up for today. Uh, thanks again to Brian Boyd for being part of it. Thanks to all of you uh, listeners who have joined us again for another episode of MindBeat, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye, everyone. The MindBeat podcast is a production of Effective School Solutions. MindBeat represents the opinions of Duncan Young, Lane Whitaker, and their guests on the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any any statements or opinions made on this podcast. 
If you or someone you know is experiencing a mental health crisis, please call the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, the SAMHSA National Helpline at 1-800-662-HELP or your local health care provider. Thank you.